We're currently going through a series in the book of 1 John. And we've arrived at the last verses in chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me there to 1 John chapter 2 and verses 28 and 29. And it reads, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Let's pray. Dear God, we stand in need of help as we come now to consider your word. Grant me clarity of thought and of speech. And, O oh Father, grant that we all have ears to hear the imperatives, the indicatives that are latent within your scripture. These things we ask, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. It may seem paradoxical to say, but even the strong need strength. Sometimes when we think about someone being strong, the thing that immediately comes to our mind is independence. We think someone who has the capacity to just do everything in their own power. But John dispels this notion of strength within his letter. The apostle lays before us on one hand his confidence concerning these believers' steadfastness in the faith and their consequent resilience to false teaching. But on the other hand, he clearly teaches that these believers need to exercise ongoing vigilance and dependence on God. If we recount some of our time within this book, it is clear that the apostle's letter is dripping with confidence concerning these believers. Last time we saw the, this idea unfolded as we examined why John was convinced that these believers would not fall away in spite of the onslaught brought about by these antichrists. But this isn't a new idea. This confidence isn't a new idea that he's bringing about in the book. If we look before at verses 12 to 14, we see that John is even speaking about the reality that these believers have overcome the evil one, that they know the Father, and that their sins are forgiven. He speaks of their ongoing union with Christ. So it seems quite evident that John is earnestly trying to convince these recipients of this letter that they're a healthy and steadfast group of believers. I mean, imagine being told that your sins are forgiven by someone who is debatably the closest person to Jesus. He comes and tells you, your sins are forgiven, that you have overcome the world, that you know the Father. Just think about how glad you would be if the one who rested upon Jesus' bosom came and told you that. So obviously these words laid out here are meant to encourage and stir these believers to being confident that they have eternal life. But yet after all of this encouragement, the beloved apostle calls them to not love the world. And as we see here in verse 28, he commands them to abide in him. So not only is there this thrust to make sure that believers know they have eternal life, but there are warnings, there are explicit and implicit commands to encourage believers to continue within the teachings of Christ, to continue loving the Father, to continue neglecting the world. John's attitude is somewhat like a concerned parent. He sees that his child is healthy, and yet 
All the while, he encourages them to eat vegetables, continue taking your vitamins. Or even like some of us, we may have a good physique, we may be relatively well physically, but we continue to exercise. In the same way, even though we may be healthy, even though our children, not mine, yours, may be healthy, we still encourage them to do the things that maintain their health. And this is because we understand rightly that they have a consistent need. And scripture uniformly and consistently diagnoses the human condition of one of weakness and need. Even those who have elevated to the privileged position of the redeemed do not within themselves possess the liberty to please God by themselves or make progress in the Christian faith on their own. And we see these two realities, this confidence that John has in these believers, and yet this thrust to continue pressing on in the faith, in the faith come to a head here in verse 28. The apostle calls us to abide in him. If we look now at the, these verses immediately before us, we notice that this injunction comes as a transition in the flow of John's thought. Previously, we would have noted that John uses endearing terms like little children, beloved, brothers, oftentimes to signal that he's transitioning from one idea to the next. This is littered throughout the epistle. You can check in this chapter, verses 1, verse 7, verse 18. It's the same thing. They're each transitions. But more than that, the, the John signals his intent to change course through his introduction of a new motivation for our fellowship with God. Prior to these verses, John makes use of many indicatives or pointers which display our union with Christ. And by these, he implicitly provokes us to entering the same joy by fanning to flame those characteristics that sweeten our communion with God. But now, he moves to almost hedging our very hope on this reality of abiding. We see the apostle saying the words, And now, little children. As though the sum or conclusion of everything he said before is this, Abide in him. We have seen this word used 11 times throughout this chapter alone, and 24 times in this entire book. We haven't gotten to the rest, but 11 times in this chapter alone. The apostle's prevalent use of this word under the influence of the Holy Spirit, strongly suggests us that it bears particular import for the people of God. If God was pleased to repeat the same word over and over, and his vocabulary is infinite, it would behoove us to look more closely at the word that he's repeating over and over. So we shouldn't heedlessly neglect expounding its significance. So as we endeavor to see this, we'll try and expound on the necessity of abiding in Christ, and what that looks like before we turn our attention to the remainder of our portion of scripture. Now in order to look more closely at this passage and the usage of this term abide, it may be helpful for us to zoom out a bit from the Johannine literature and look at its wider context. And more specifically, the Gospel of John. As many of you may know, we are going through this book as part of our morning sessions. We've taken a pause, but let's leap forward briefly to a few verses of chapter 15 to receive a fuller picture of what John means when he says, 
abide in him. Beginning at verse 1, if you're looking, it reads, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus, of course, is using parabolic language. He pictures himself as a life-giving vine which sustains the branches. The analogy here is very, very simple. Just as a branch has no life outside of being connected to a tree, so too are all of those who are united by grace through faith. You would expect that a branch lying on the ground without a connection to the tree to be a dead branch. You wouldn't expect to see leaves on it or it budding. But one attached to the tree would be living. To abide in him, therefore, is pictured as a matter of life and death. After the fall of Adam, we had no life in ourselves. And the proof of this, the proof that we have no life in ourselves is demonstrated by our inability to produce anything that is pleasing to God. Our deadness in sin is demonstrated by our our lack of ability to do anything that pleases God. So here in chapter 15, then the contrast which we are supposed to see is between those who are abiding and therefore have spiritual vitality as evidenced by fruitfulness and those who are not abiding and come to spiritual ruin as displayed by fruitlessness. Brethren, every act we have done in pursuit of conformity to God's law has sprung from the infinite well of God's grace. Few Christians would deny this fact, actually. Even the irreligious wouldn't deny what I just said. But after acknowledging this like several times in our life, we may be tempted to believe that having begun in Christ... We are basically strong enough to manage the rest on our own. My friends, listen, the same disposition of neediness that we entered the Christian faith with, the the same helplessness that we saw when we first knew that we were sinners and could do nothing to enter right standing with God. That's that same helplessness that John is pointing at currently. That same mind that motivated our souls to cleave to Christ for forgiveness. It is the same dependence which we have to now exert to press forward. We don't receive a power-up at salvation. We didn't drink a Christian super serum. That's not how it worked. You didn't get anything that you've done in your Christian life through only your own innate ability. Though within our regenerate state there is a radical change against the corruption of the flesh and the wiles of Satan, we would not prevail alone. Christ, the the overseer of our souls, must be our aid. He must continue to nourish us that we may remain fruitful. And it's this helplessness that motivates the apostle to give us this command to abide. We cannot produce anything of our own strength. We do not have the will to overcome sin by our own 
power, by our own wisdom, by our own strength. We've previously noted that this command doesn't come to us passively, but it's a call to action. And thankfully, we have some help in discerning exactly what it means to abide in him through the previous references that I mentioned before that are littered throughout this letter. If you look with me at verse 6 of chapter 2, John says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So many times we approach passages like these and we try to figure out all of the ways that it doesn't apply to us. We look at Jesus as this special figure in history who is the God-man, who is basically walking around as this titan, able to do everything. And we say, well, you know, I'm not supposed to do everything like that. He was special. I'm not supposed to do everything like that. Jesus was extraordinary in his acts of service and his righteous deed. But, his, but our attitude shouldn't be to figure out all the ways we aren't to be like Jesus. That's, the, that's a horrible way of looking at this verse. The reason John's exhortation is so general in verse 6 is because there's no facet of our lives that is unreached by God's commands. It is the whole of life that must be oriented towards God, not a particular part. It isn't like we pick and choose on which day or in which ways we're supposed to serve Christ. It is the whole of self that's supposed to be brought to bear and expressed in devotion to God. As verse 29 alludes to, those who are called by Christ's name, those who are vitally united to him, do righteous deeds because they are born of him. God has not begotten those who are utterly dissimilar to Christ. But sometimes we may also fool ourselves to think we make great leaps of sanctification because we haven't done something like kill someone this week. Because we've basically gone through the Ten Commandments of thou shalt not and ticked them off on a checkbox and have been satisfied with that standard. But brethren, your irreligious friends, your atheist friends, your agnostic friends, your friends who care nothing about Christianity, do the same exact thing. They go around thinking that they're good people because they obey the Ten Commandments. Obviously they don't because as we've noted by Pastor John's preaching, the Ten Commandments stretch way further than a list of prohibitions. Brothers and sisters, as Sinclair Ferguson says in the book that the ladies recently concluded, Devoted to God, Sin lies hidden within the deep folds of our hearts, in the dark recesses of our ambitions, desires and aspirations, and even our gifts. Are you seeking after a further purification of your very motives and ambitions? Are your aspirations your own? But even more than that, those habits or those patterns of behavior that you see that need to be cut off, do you even want to get rid of them? That may strike us as a strange question, but it's possible to actually lose the desire to change. It's possible for you to live a life of mediocre obedience to God, a life where you see that it's too hard to struggle against this sin or the next sin, and just say, well, I'm just going to settle to being a nominal, superficial Christian. That's very, very possible. 
it's hard to ask yourself these questions sometimes because we're afraid sometimes of the answer. But we must reckon with our sin. We must take this beast that rages within us and subdue it so that we can walk in holiness. Because eventually, eventually the time is coming, as we will touch on later, when we will have to look Christ in His face and reckon with Him. The process of growing in holiness tends to reveal and unravel more and more layers of sin. But it's a process we must go through nonetheless if we're going to say that we abide in Him. We ought to give heed to making progress. Lest through carelessness and lack of vigilance, we see ourselves overcome by our own sinful appetites. Many biblical authors have commented on this idea that in order to gain more of Christ, in order to be further nourished such that we display more of the fruit which he desires, we must lose something. Paul tells Timothy that soldiers do not become involved in civilian affairs because it is his aim to please the one who enlisted him. In order to make any advance in holiness, you can't just will it to happen. You can't just sit down on your couch and somehow think that you will ascend to a higher place of sanctification. There has to be some exertion of the will. There has to be some putting to death. There has to be some discomfort. There has to be some straining towards the mark of Christ. And usually, some sacrifice of even permissible things. So things like entertainment, engagement with your friends, your family even, your rest at times may ask to be forsaken. Now obviously we aren't to neglect every ordinary grace God has given. You aren't to stop spending time with your wife because God commands you to love your wife. But if this prevents or impedes your sweet nourishment that comes from Christ, perhaps you need to love her less. That comes hard to me because I'm a newlywed, so I understand what that means for me. We are. Oh, it seems like my battery died. We are persons who have experienced and love to dote over those who have become our own. But yet, Christ calls us to abide in Him. Christ calls us to neglect and forsake everything for His sake. I need Christ, and furthermore, my wife doesn't need a man who values her above Christ. None of our wives need that. None of your husbands need that. She, along with all of the other men, need men that value those sweet moments of fellowship more than themselves. The scripture this evening is leading us to an anxious inquiry, a holy exercise of considering whether Christ be formed in us. Or whether though our own or whether through rather our own laxity or carelessness we have neglected to display the efficacy of the Spirit's work in our lives. The passage isn't meant to discourage us though. We may be tempted to become obsessed with looking at our actions and scrutinizing ourselves to the point of uncertainty, whether these things are even resident within us at all. We are all painfully aware that none of these pointers that we have indicated throughout this book remain in us in perfection. We all have far to travel before we arrive at the unmatched and unparalleled perfection of Christ. But we ought to know for one thing though, 
a decisive victory over sin has already been won. We are more like on a mop-up operation. We're not on an operation in which we're still trying to figure out who's going to win. That's not the case with our salvation. That's not the case with Christ's work. Christ has purchased a people who will be zealous unto good works. How then can our lives look no different after a decade of professing Christ? Does the vine not give enough nourishment that even the most frail branches will be brought to flower? Of course it does. Of course he does. And as the scripture says in James, he gives even more grace to those who humble themselves concerning their sin and approach him for help. But while John lays upon us this sober injunction, we should also notice from this short text that he doesn't leave us without a motivation to abide in him. He says in the latter half of verse 28, to abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. People are often inspired by what they achieve in the end. You may see people huffing and puffing away in a gym, sweat streaming down their face, looking like they're about to give up the ghost. And why are they doing that? Mostly because they want to get toned or stronger or look like someone in a magazine. I, I don't know. Every person is motivated by some goal and the effort that they put in is usually indicative of the value that they place on it. John is arguing that a motivation for abiding is looking upon God in delight with neither dread of sin or the second death, but rather calm comfort that we will receive the commendation of God. This may seem kind of odd to us. It appears that John is telling us that our works or the way we live our lives give us confidence. Is John saying we run up to God on the last day and say that we have kept the stipulations of your law? And so you ought to reward us? Well, yes and no. John isn't advocating that you're now acceptable to God because of your efforts. We have not somehow replaced the work of Jesus by our own merits. All those who are raised on the last day don't suddenly stop being vitally united to the vine and become their own vine. That's not what John has in view. So if we're asking the question whether our works will give us confidence before God because they are so intrinsically pure and perfect that they've met the standard of God's justice, then the answer is no. That isn't the case. And that will never be the case once we're living here in the flesh. But brothers and sisters, he is saying something that we can be confident about. John's words should be rendered something like this. Those people whose lives display a measure of Christ's own likeness will be glad and confident when he returns. There's a sense in which we can be assured that we have run the race well. That Christ will be overjoyed to run to us with reward and gladness. But why? Well, there are those of us who have sacrificed for the name of Christ, friends, family, easy relationship with co-workers, comforts, sleep, sometimes even food. And do you think that those deeds will be forgotten by Christ? No, he's coming swiftly with his reward in tow. The bounty of blessing that he says that he has reserved for the saints, the scripture says, no eye has seen 
nor ear heard, nor entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. This is what awaits those who resemble our Lord and practice righteousness. As verse 29 says, But the best reward that the saint may anticipate is being embraced by Christ on that last day, when he counts all that he has lost for Christ's name as naught, because he has gained the smiling confidence, the smiling countenance of Christ his Lord. Do you anticipate this day? The divines used to say, if we do not ardently look forward to the coming of Christ, we have made little progress in the Christian life. Amen. Amen. And we will, God willing, explore this chapter, this idea in chapter 3. Brethren, there's only one more grand act that God has left unfulfilled. And that is the return of Jesus. There is coming a day when each of us will appear before the face of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. To give an account of what we have done during the short time of our lives. And that's the appearing or coming that John has in mind. He doesn't speak here of a rapture or secret invisible gathering of saints. But rather as the Greek word suggests, the visible presence of Jesus himself. This word throughout the scripture, parousia, is, is uniformly used to refer to the second coming of Christ. But if you're not convinced of that, further evidence that John is referring to the second coming of Christ is provided within the context. At the coming of Jesus, there will be a judgment of works. We are called to abide in him or put another way to continue practicing righteousness so that we will have confidence when he comes. The text therefore suggests there is a weighing of the deeds of individuals, which results in some people being confident and some people being fearful or ashamed. Christ is judging two different people. On the one hand, there are those whose works will be found wanting and therefore will be ashamed. And on the other hand, there are those whose works will shine like the sun as they display the radiance of Christ's works. The return of Christ has been prophesied for over 2,000 years. But this does not mean his return is not imminent. The apostles saw the return of Christ as an event that could occur at any moment. Without announcement. And therefore he's urging you, be prepared. That awesome day of reckoning is coming. Don't be found with your pants down. Don't live your life as a nominal Christian who will be satisfied with superficial appearances. On that day, everyone's works will be made manifest before his eyes, and there will be no hiding among the congregation of even the faithful. Brothers, God wants us to be confident on the day of his appearing, and he leaves us with a surety here in verse 29, which we have alluded to on several occasions. He says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Only those who are begotten of him resemble our Savior. Like gives birth to like. We wouldn't assume that a gorilla gave birth to a zebra. In the same way, we don't assume that the unrighteous are birthed from our God, who is righteous. The fruit of abiding is a life filled with righteousness. 
It's through the rebirth that we are able to practice righteousness. But more than that, John is making mention of the obviousness of it all. He says, you may be sure, as though there's no margin for error. It should be clear to us, in other words, those who are righteous. It isn't when people are too righteous that we have a hard time determining whether they're Christian. Even the irreligious wouldn't assume someone who's praying all day, who's in the streets, gospelizing people, who's trying to care for the needy. They wouldn't think that that person's claim to be a Christian is false. They may think he's a fanatic, but few would question his claims to be a disciple of Jesus. Determining whether a person is born again only becomes difficult when professing believers live lives that are plagued with sin. But for those who yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness in due season, we see something of the the Savior resident within them, and it is clear to all. The question is, are we living lives that suggest to all that we are abiding in the Savior? The question is, are people viewing your life as a life that is inseparable from Christ? And we shouldn't miss the obvious implication within the text. God will work righteousness in all those who he has caused to experience the new birth. Although we are called to act out this miracle of regeneration and give expression to the new life we have been given, God has assured those who have been given to Christ, those he has justified and ransomed by his blood, so that we could be holy. God has assured them that he will work in them righteousness. Everyone that is born of him will practice righteousness. And as our brother said this morning, this ought to humble us and make us even all the more eager to share in Christ's joy at his return. So may we all endeavor to do this as members at CRBC. May it not be said of of any of us that we fail to have confidence on that last day. May we encourage And push one another to stir up each other to love of Christ all the more.